Well, we are continuing this morning in our study of the gospel according to Luke, and specifically Luke chapter 21. And uh, this is the third and final sermon on the Olivet Discourse uh, from, from Luke chapter 21, which goes from Luke 21, uh, verse 5 to 38. And this morning we'll be going from the last section is, is verses 25 to 38. But again, I'll read the whole, the whole thing. Luke chapter, five, sorry, Luke chapter 21, 5 to 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one left upon the other, one stone upon the other, that they will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, what then will be the sign of these things? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Then it said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill what was written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for the advance of his kingdom and for the glory of his name. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, once again, there are things in it that are hard for us to understand. There are things in this that are terrifying to us, or at least would be terrifying to us, apart from the fact that you are for us. We praise you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, all of these things need not be a terror to us. 
And help us still, by the power of your Spirit, to stand firm, to be steadfast in the face of what is coming. Lord, whether that means the face of of the coming of the end and and all of the, the terrors and tribulations that are taking place upon the earth at that time, or whether it means the trials that we face in our own lives before that time, help us, Lord, to stand in your strength that we might have we done all to stand firm. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, as an unbeliever, I read The Stand, a popular novel by Stephen King. And I recommend you do not read the book because of its language and graphic violence and immorality. But upon reflection, that book actually strikes an an ironic contrast with a lot of what we're seeing today. The Stand is an apocalyptic novel about a weaponized strain of influenza that is 99.4% fatal. It was developed in the United States in in a lab and was accidentally released. This was written many years ago, not just last year. It was accidentally released, and as it begins to spread through the population, U.S. agents release the virus in Russia and China to ensure that those countries are destroyed as well. It quickly becomes a global pandemic and within a month kills almost the entire population of the earth. And the survivors, that takes place really close to the beginning, and the survivors divide and gather into two factions, one that's represented as good and the other is represented as evil and they make a final stand against the virus and against each other well yesterday as we drove past a huge convoy of vehicles along highway 97 we're filled with those who are making a stand against the government vaccine mandate it brought to my mind the the convoy that settled upon downtown ottawa and many of the people that are, are involved in this, in this convoy are doing it respectfully, but others quite the opposite. And now counter-protests have sprung up as well, where, where others are making a stand against those who are making a stand against the vaccine mandates. But that's only a couple of stands. Our culture it seems to be increasingly about making a stand. As our culture increasingly rejects biblical morality, many want to make a stand. Some want to make a stand against immorality itself. Some want to make a stand against the, the government that, that's promoting immorality. Others want to make a stand against climate change or racism or all of the above. And I believe we do need to make a stand against some of these things. But the issues that people stand for come and go far more important than what we're making a stand against is who we are making a stand for. We need to make a stand for Christ. But many people, even under the guise of making a stand for Christ and some of these things, are making a stand for selfish reasons, for their own pride or for their own advancement, for their own comfort, or for a wrong view of rights. We need to make sure that our stand is spiritual. We need to make sure that our goals are spiritual and that our goals and methods line up with God's Word. We also need to make sure that we aren't trying to achieve spiritual ends through fleshly means. Ultimately, we need to make a stand against the world and the flesh and the devil. It's pretty easy to make a stand against the government compared to these things. The world and the flesh and the devil are your greatest enemies. As I've said many times, you live in one, another lives in you, and the other is hell-bent on your destruction. You need to make a stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but, but I would argue that the most difficult stand we need to take is against our own flesh. Because it is so prevalent that even causes us at times when we are trying to make a stand for Christ to do it in a fleshly way. I believe our flesh is our greatest 
enemy and our most insidious enemy. But we need to stand against them all, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what it means to make a stand for Christ. In Ephesians 6, Paul warns the Ephesians Christians to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He says we are to put on the whole armor of God so that having so we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, therefore, we are to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Friends, we are in a supernatural battle, but God has equipped us for the fight. He's given us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. The evil day is a day of trial, a day of trial and temptation, a day of darkness and despair, a day of catastrophe and loss. Many of us have faced days like that. Maybe today is a day like that for you. If you haven't already seen these days, that all of us will face days like that. It's part and parcel of living in a fallen world. However, there's a, another day coming that is going to be the culmination. The culmination of all those days. Talking, of course, the day of the Lord. And as much as we eagerly anticipate that day, as much as we pray for the arrival of that day, the days leading up to that day will be extremely difficult. At least according to my eschatology. It will be days that we have to endure. It will be days that we will have to withstand. Days in which we will be called and required to stand. In our passage this morning, we are continuing our study of the Olivet Discourse, where just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus is prophesying future events related to the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And some of the events that Jesus is speaking of have, have already taken place. It took place soon after the prophecy, in fact, within 40 years of Jesus saying these words. But we're still waiting the fulfillment of other elements of what Jesus spoke about in this passage. It can be hard to distinguish between what's already happened and what is yet to come. Key events that, that point to the end of the age are repeated. The imminent destruction of Jerusalem points to end-time events. And both events have implications and applications for disciples at all times. All disciples at all times have to make a stand. So Jesus is telling his disciples then and now to make a stand. Disciples need to take a stand, make a stand for Christ and they need to make a stand especially against their own flesh every day, but especially as the day of the Lord approaches. Christians must stand firm in temptation and persecution and destruction and they will stand tall in redemption. But unbelievers, on the other hand, will not stand they cannot stand against the world and the flesh and the devil. They will not and cannot stand because they're on the same side. But whatever side you stand on, you will stand before God on that day. I see three key sections in this passage. First of all, Christians will stand tall when Christ returns, verses 25 to 28. Second, Christ's word about his return stands in verses 29 to 33. And third, Christians must stand firm in anticipation of Christ's return, verses 34 to 38. So first of all, first of all uh, verses 25 to 29, Christians will stand tall when Christ returns. Verses 20 to 24, Jesus was just speaking of events that were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And within 40 years of his making this prophecy. However, I believe he's also pointing to future global events that are going to occur just prior to his return. It's even clearer, as we saw last week in, in Matthew's gospel account. Jesus was saying that disciples in both times, whether it's in the destruction of Jerusalem or at the end of time, must stand. 
They must stand not just at both times, but they must stand in every time in between, in all times. We need to be prepared to stand in the face of these events in all events. Sometimes making a stand for Christ will, will mean facing persecution head-on, and sometimes making a stand for Christ will, will mean he- fleeing for the hills. And our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world are facing decisions like this today. Today. The people of Jerusalem experienced horrific events, horrific trials and tribulations in the destruction of the city. Jesus said that the signs and the, the natural disasters that took place uh, around the, the destruction of Jerusalem would, would be catastrophic. And that they would, they would prefigure the coming destruction at the time of the end. Just look back for a moment at verse 11. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, this was at least partially fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Archaeological evidence shows that there were, were big earthquakes around the time of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem. And famine and pestilence killed many during the siege of the city. There were also cosmic signs. Remember I talked about how the historian Josephus spoke of a flaming sword being visible over Jerusalem and bright lights in the temple and, and chariots fighting in the sky. And of, of course, th- this is not authoritative. It's not scripture. But there's another historian, Tacitus, who wrote a similar thing. So it seems very likely that there were, there were earthly signs as well as cosmic signs surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's a coming time that will be far worse than all the trials and tribulations that have taken place previously. Jesus warns in verse 25 that there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. There's going to be cosmic signs in the sky and natural disasters on earth on an unprecedented level with the exception of the global flood. There's ample evidence of this in Old Testament prophecies. Just look at one. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Again, there's, there's quite a few prophecies of that. That's just one. And again, apart from the flood, nothing has ever taken place in the history of the whole world that could be described as coming close to the fulfillment of these signs. Sea to sky and everything in between will be affected. These are environmental birth pangs as creation prepares to receive her king. Reminds me of of one of the times that I've been most terrified in my life. And there's been a number that I've, of times that I've been terrified. I was body surfing in Mexico in waves that, that really I had no business being in. This was a, a massive, massive shore break on, on a beach that, that I wasn't familiar with. So I didn't know how the, waves, how the waves worked on that beach. And one wave picked me up and dropped me onto the sand under the water. And I was being, I felt like I was in a washing machine. I was being on an extra spin cycle. I was being thrown around and, and held under the water by the waves. And, and just as I was, I was starting to feel panic approach, I bobbed to the surface and was able to, to get a breath. And, and I've, there, there have been very few breaths that have been more appreciative of than that breath. But there is no coming up for air in the face of this wave. There is no solid ground to make your way to in the face of this wave, at least for unbelievers. We haven't seen or experienced anything like this yet. This is parallel to the great flood. This is is a tsunami that will consume the whole earth. And Christians will be the only ones who will trust God in that day. Verse 26. People will faint in fear and, and foreboding. They'll be in abject horror. The, the word faint here can mean breathe your last. Some people might be literally scared to death on that day. 
But what comes next is even more terrifying for unbelievers. Verse 27, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. These images of the the Son of Man come from Daniel 7, as, as Tom read for us earlier. It's crucial for understanding. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. This kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man is a messianic title. The son of man comes before God and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And as Jesus has shown clearly throughout Luke's gospel account, that Jesus himself is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's going to come in a cloud with great power and glory. There's going to be no mistaking his coming. It will be like lightning that shines from the east to the west, Matthew 24, 27. Somehow everybody is going to see his return. In in Revelation 1-7, quoting Zechariah 12, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Turn please with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting it on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in white, in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the, ro- the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. On that day, Jesus Christ will come to earth physically to consummate his kingdom. He came initially to, 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 begin to, to begin to bring it into, into being, but, but at his return, he's going to consummate. He's going to fulfill his kingdom fully and finally. In Acts 1, as the disciples watched Jesus ascend bodily to heaven, the angels appeared and told the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Just as Jesus departed bodily, he will return bodily. He will actually stand in the very place where he made this prophecy. Zechariah 14.4 On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount will move northward and the other half southward. And that is return. Unbelievers will call on mountains and rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. They will cry out in terror, but you will cry out in worship. You will cry out in worship. They will receive the wrath of the Lamb, but for those who are clothed in the blood of the Lamb, it means that you have entered into Christ's victory fully and finally. Brother or sister, no matter what you see, no matter what you experience, do not be dismayed. Stand up and look up, for your redemption draws near. On that day, unlike unbelievers who will cower, but disciples will stand tall. Verse 28. Now again, when these things take, begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The saints will stand tall, but sinners will shrink back from the coming of the Lord. For the unbeliever, the coming of the Lord means damnation. But for the believer, it means redemption. 
Matthew 24, 30 and 31 reads, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, uh, clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. On this day, it will be very obvious who is on which side and what their eternal destiny will be. Those whose souls have been redeemed will now be redeemed from this fallen world. As J.C. Rao says, they, they ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world and the devil, is close at hand. He shall soon bid an eternal farewell to sickness, sorrow, death, and, and temptation. In Revelation 21, 3 and 4, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of, of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It thrills me to think of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that I'm alive to see that day, to see his return myself. He may even return in our day. He may return soon. But even as Jesus was speaking of future redemption, his prophecy had implications and application for his first disciples and for all disciples. Even though this was in the distant future, from, from their perspective, it, it still had application and implications for them. This is the hope of believers at all times, the redemption of the Lord. This is the truth that we stand on. And even if we don't live to see that day, there is an application for us, as we're going to see in a moment. But first, consider how confident you can be in the Lord's return. Verses 29 to 33, the Christ's word about his return stands. Jesus now tells his disciples a parable in verses 29 to 30. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Now, fig trees are deciduous. They lose their leaves in the fall. Now, personally, I, I love all four seasons, but I am more than ready for spring. Last Wednesday was Groundhog Day. The good news is that Wyrton Willie didn't see his shadow, so he predicted early spring. But Punxsutawney Phil, on the other hand, saw his shadow, and that means that winter's here to stay. Now, I don't know how you're supposed to interpret that, that the groundhogs obviously couldn't get their act together. But on this February morning in Kelowna, it looks like winter is finally fading as the snow disappears. When I walk the dog, I, I watch carefully the, the, the buds on the trees to see if they're, if they're starting to come out. And, and there's some that I think might be starting to, to show, but there's no clear sign yet of, of the coming spring and summer. But spring is coming. Spring is coming. Of that, you can be assured. But as sure as the coming of spring is, the Lord's return is more sure. The coming of the Lord is more sure even than the coming of spring. And, and you can take that to the bank. You can stand on that because God's promises, God's word is sure. Just as we can see summer coming and the leaves on the trees, we can observe world events and know that Christ is coming. J.C. Ryle's warning is helpful now as it was when he first wrote it. We are not to be absorbed in politics, but we are, we are to mark political events. We are not to turn into prophets ourselves, but to study diligently the signs of our times. So doing, the day of Christ will not come upon us entirely unawares. Friends, we are watching for something far more important, infinitely more important than warmer weather. We're watching for the return of Christ. We're watching for the consummation of the kingdom of God. There, there are so-called prophets who, who say that they can tell you the day, but they are no more qualified than a groundhog. But Jesus' word can be trusted. He says that when you see the things he's speaking of, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus continues, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. 
Now this verse is difficult to, to understand. In the early church, the majority of Christians believed that Jesus was speaking directly of the first generation of his disciples, that they would be alive to see the end. Well, obviously that was not the case. But many generations throughout church history have felt that they were living in the time of Christ's return, that they felt that they were that generation that Jesus is speaking of. So who was Jesus speaking of? Again, some would suggest that he is referring to AD 70 as the beginning of the end, or that AD 70 was, was a type of a shadow or a picture that pointed to the end. Others suggest that generation refers to the Jewish people, and, and technically it can mean that. Or it could mean the generation of people living at the time when the cosmic global signs begin to take place. Now, I can't say for certain, but, but, but I believe that this last one is actually the most likely. That Jesus is saying that, that when these, these global signs be, begin to appear, that his return is very close within, within the, the lifetime of that generation. And this view also takes into consideration that the typological nature of the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember how Jesus is answering two questions. The disciples asked it as, as one, but it's really two questions. What will the signs be that the destruction of the temple will take place? And what will the signs be of the destruction of, uh, of the end of all things? Jesus is answering both questions. And so I think typologically this, this interpretation actually answers it. How, how this is, Jesus is saying here, that this generation of first, the first generation of disciples who lived to see the, the first the destruction of Jerusalem, so also those who were alive, the disciples who were alive at that time, will live to see the end of the age. So it's typological. So again, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that that when these signs begin to take place, that they that you will can know for certain that it will take place within your lifetime. Now, some people believe that, that there is also going to be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church prior to that day. Now, that's actually a, a new doctrine in church history. It first appeared in the early 19th century. And I believe it has little in the, in the way of biblical support. I'd love it to be true. But I don't see it in Scripture. Now, it's, it's hard to say for certain what is going to happen to the church in this interim period between the, the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom. And, and as, as the time approaches the end, but I believe we, we get a clue in verse 21, where Jesus warned the disciples to flee to the mountains when they saw Roman armies encamped around Jerusalem. And remember I talked about how third century historian Eusebius tells us that the Christians heeded this, this warning and fled to the region of, of to the city of Pella and survived. So it's possible that, that what's going to happen is that many Christians are going to flee. And there is some scriptural warrant to this. The, the prophet Zechariah speaks of believers fleeing and hiding in the valley on the day of the Lord. Again, we, we can't say exactly how this is going to work out, but, but I believe that God might somehow protect Christians then like he did the Christians who fled to Perea, like he did Noah and his family in the ark and, and the Jews living in Goshen during the plagues that he sent upon Egypt. They were physically present. They weren't gone, but they were protected. But however this is going, going to work out, we, we do not know whether Jesus is going to deliver us from the tribulation of those days, but we do know that he would deliver us through the tribulation of those days. We know that his promise will stand firm, that he is going to deliver us, that he will keep his word. We do know that he has already delivered us from our worst suffering by suffering on our behalf, by standing in our place and, and receiving the condemnation that you and I deserve. So we know that, that already whatever comes, whatever we face, that, that our worst situations that we could ever face have already been been resolved by Jesus Christ. Again, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we can trust Jesus' word as we anticipate that day. Jesus promises in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
none of Jesus' word will pass away, but he's saying specifically here that his word about the passing away of heaven and earth, passing away, will not pass away. Christ's word about his return stands. Everything he said will take place, will take place. And so we as his people can stand on his word and his truth. Finally, verses 34 to 38. Christians must stand firm in anticipation of Christ's return. Jesus here now moves from prophecy to admonition. Verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus here warns of of three dangers that will weigh you down and cause you to be ensnared on that day. Dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Dissipation and, and drunkenness go together. Dissipation it refers to the nausea and headache that, that come with a hangover. And thankfully, many of us have never experienced that. I hope that none of us have experienced that since coming to faith. But I think that the temptation of the third danger is more common in the body, in our body. It's the cares of this life. The cares of this, of this life are also more insidious. They become a distraction. It's like the the slow creep of the world into your mind and heart. Things like entertainment and wealth and success, health and fitness. All all of these things can, can be, well, not wrong in and of themselves. They can be like a Trojan horse that brings the world into your heart. And it happens slowly and gradually, again, insidiously, so you don't even realize it's taking place. And unless you take heed, before you know it, you will look more like the world than you will like Christ. Each one of these things, again, isn't wrong in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong, per se, with entertainment, but but what are you being entertained with? Are, Are you being careful not to put things before your eyes that are going to drag you away from Christ? Are you being careful so that the entertainment doesn't become like the, the siren song that we talked about last night that, that just lulls you to crash upon the rocks and be devoured. Wealth, again, wealth is not wrong in of itself. You can, you can use wealth for the advance of the kingdom of God. But be careful not to set your heart on those things. Rather, lay up treasures in heaven. Likewise, success. You can be very successful in, in the eyes of the world. But be a failure according to God's word. Health and fitness can, can earn you accolades and, and admiration from, from the people around us. And we should, we should be careful. We need to be good stewards of the bodies that have been given us. But I think particularly in our culture, these, these things become idols. Each can lull you to sleep. It can cause your eyes to grow heavy. I think as we, as we think about this warning, we, we need to remember who Jesus gave this warning to. Jesus gave this warning to his disciples. Those who had already forsaken their lives and their families and their livelihoods in many respects to, to follow Jesus. Again, from, from J.C. Ryle, there is no sin so great but that a great saint may fall into it. There is no saint so great that he may fall into a great sin. Brothers and sisters, if the disciples had to be warned about, about these things, and, and I think, again, especially, especially about the cares of this life, the disciples had to be warned. How much more 21st century comfortable Christians you need to watch yourselves against all three. Puritan Thomas Boston wrote in his book, Christian Watchfulness, Stated and Enforced, he said that, that watching is a military term. By watching, the army is secured from surprise by the enemy. And he says there's two things to watching. The soul is keeping spiritually awake. And two, observation. First of all, that, that we must stay awake to watch. As opposed to sleeping. 
We must not sleep but be awake, even during a sermon. That is, keep grace in exercise. We must keep from carnal security and from spiritual sloth. We must keep the soul in spiritual motion and holy exercise. When we sleep, we rest, but our rest, he says, is not here. Therefore, we must always be moving heavenwards. Two, we must observe. He said the sentinel that walks, that walks around, unless he carefully observe what he see, what is around him, cannot be said to watch. Our mind must be intent upon our business. Then we can catch all advantages against and ward off hazard from the enemy. Hence, watching is expressed by taking heed and by observing ourselves. Are you awake as to what's going on around you? Are you observing what's going on around you? Are you especially observing what's going on within you as your heart res causes responses to come that are, are worldly and sinful, fleshly, in instead of ways that, that honor God? Disciples must maintain a constant state of readiness and prayer, not only in persecution, not only in, in the destruction of Jerusalem, but at the end of the age and at every moment in between. We need to stand firm at all times so that the day does not come upon us like a trap, so that you are not among those who think they are safe but are ensnared. Remember back in Luke 17, 22 to 37, Jesus spoke of the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking and marrying. The cares of this life were going on so that they were destroyed in the water and the flood came and Noah entered the ark. They were all destroyed. Or in the days of Lot, where they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. But those were the, the, the second one, that the, the, the days of Lot were was localized to the, the, the plain of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of, of the world under under in Noah's day was was a one-time event. God has promised, God has covenanted that he will not destroy the world again by water. But destruction is coming. It's going to come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Very clearly, this, Jesus is speaking here of the end of all things, the end of the age. And Jesus is saying that that day is going to come on all who dwell on the earth. Very clearly speaking of, of, again of end time. Do not let that day come upon you like a trap. The trap springs suddenly with deadly swiftness to ensnare those who are not watching. Do not be ensnared in the trap. Because after this, there is no more warnings. Those who have been ensnared will come under God's eternal judgment. Again here, Jesus closes with a final call to faithfulness. Verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So you need to watch... But don't just watch. You need to watch and pray. You need to watch and pray. Remember a few years ago in the series on the, the, the Lord's Prayer, the, the, the model prayer, we talked about praying Scripture. And we walked through the, 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 the model prayer. It's also called the pattern prayer to, is of the Lord's Prayer to, to, to pray through the Scripture as a, as a way to pray God's word back to God. God speaks to us through scripture. We pray his word back to him. Well, what's, what's the second petition of the model prayer? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Luke 11 and 2. When you pray your kingdom come, you're, you're obviously praying for the consummation of the kingdom of God. You're praying for the kingdom of Christ. You're praying for the return of Christ. But you're also praying for Christ to rule in your own heart. You're praying that the kingdom of Christ will be established in your own heart. You're praying for, for the advance of the gospel among the nations. 
You're praying for your own deliverance and for the, for the deliverance of your loved ones. And praying this daily, praying on a daily basis, your kingdom come, and, and what that means is, is a great way to, to help yourself to stand firm and to have a kingdom mindset. To be looking forward to, to be looking forward to anticipating the kingdom of, of Christ. And it's also the means whereby God has declared and decreed that He would that He would actually help you. Because you're, you're praying, and in this you're actually praying that you will stand firm. You're praying that, that you're going to stay awake. You're, you're praying that you're going to be able to, to escape what's going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, so get in the habit of, of praying on a, on a daily basis, praying through the, the model prayer. It's a great prayer to, to begin your day with. Again, not just the words, but, but the ideas of the petitions, the six petitions of that prayer can, can be, be a foundation for your prayer life. And praying especially for the return of Christ. Praying, come, Lord Jesus. And living a life of, of watchful prayer can also mean denying yourself of, of basic needs like, like sleep and food. So just to focus on spiritual disciplines. Nelson and I have been, have been talking about fasting. It's something that, that he is, is really interested in. I, I think this is a, a great thing. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but, but have you ever... Let go of food. Give it up on food for, for a time so that you can focus, and not like a weight loss plan, but giving up on food so, so that you can actually focus undistractedly on the things of God. Have you ever given up sleep so you can spend time with the, in the Word of God, either staying up late and, and going to God's Word in prayer or getting up early? Or in the night watches, spending time in fellowship with God. Again, these are these are basic physical needs. But but are you doing this? This is a way a way to be watchful in prayer. Have you ever spent time in prayer and fasting? Have you ever been like David in Psalm sixty three five and six? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. And with, with verse 36, we have an end of the Olivet Discourse. We have, a, we have an end of, of, the, of this particular passage of Scripture that, that really goes back to, to verse 20, verse 1. Not just of the Olivet Discourse, but of this time of teaching the temple. Verse 20, 37, we, we read that, that Jesus was teaching in the temple, and, and, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, the people came to the temple to hear him. So this really is a, it forms an inclusio it, it, that links like brackets that, that go all the way back to chapter 20, verse 1. So again, this is the end, not just of the Olivet Discourse, but of, of Jesus teaching in the temple. And it's also the end of, of Jesus' public ministry. So this summary then serves as a, as a transition into the events of the crucifixion and sets up a contrast between Jesus' involvement with the people and Judas approaching treacherous, we're going to see next week. But quickly, just notice two things. He continues to teach in the temple. The, the people continued to listen to Jesus, and Jesus continued to teach. And secondly, that he lodged on the Mount of Olives. Again, this is the Olivet Discourse. That, that we, we know from, we know from the, the Passion narrative that that Jesus frequented the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the, the Mount of Olives. You, you can actually go and visit the olive grove that's, that's there to this day. Jesus possibly spoke the words of this Olivet Discourse in that very place. In contrast to the religious leadership, and despite their best efforts, Jesus is still very popular with the people. But in just a couple of days, that is going to change. One way or another, all people will stand before God on that day. When Jesus preached this message, there was a lot more that he prophesied that was going to take place, and, it, and we're still awaiting it to take place. 
There's much for disciples then and now to learn from this teaching. Again, the days that are leading up to Christ's return are going to be very difficult. Much as the, the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem were very difficult for the first disciples. Those who were alive at that time, maybe even some in this room, will face unprecedented persecution and tribulation. But even still we say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Because the approach of that day means that our redemption draws near. It means that the Lord Jesus himself draws near. That we will all stand before him, those who are his for redemption, but those who are separate from him for condemnation. Just think about the return of Christ. How often do you think about the return of Christ? Again, not in a, in a way of, of just trying to fit all the things to, together as, as, as though it's, it's a, in a, you know, some kind of morbid fascination with these things, but, but with the anticipation, not just of the day, but of the coming of Christ. God is faithful. And God calls us to be faithful. God causes, calls us to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Let me close with, with one prayer from, from the Valley of Vision. And again, if you've not read this, this, this book, it's, it's, I highly commend it. It's a collection of, of, of prayers, mainly Puritans, but others in church history. It's called The Second Coming. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, did suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word, promises, sacraments show thy death until thou come again. That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. Waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it unto my soul. By a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean waves, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body a spiritual body, this dishonored body a glorious body, this weak body a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises, as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And then after judgment, peace and rest life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen. Amen.